Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. On April 4th's edition of Line One, Dr. Yanya Lalich was with us discussing the fascinating world of cults. We looked at what makes an organization a cult, how each of us are vulnerable to falling into the trap of charismatic leaders, and how we can help loved ones who might be lost. Due to an outpouring of interest for more on this topic, Dr. Lalich has graciously agreed to come back to continue the conversation. On today's program, we will be hearing more about her personal experience of indoctrination and escape. We'll take a closer look at how the internet and social media has changed the landscape for recruitment and indoctrination. And we will explore the world of human human trafficking and other self-sealing systems. Dr. Lalich has also, she's also going to walk us through her reasoning that the Trump movement is in fact a political cult and why this time in our history is unlike any other. Dr. Lalich is one of the world's leading experts on cultic studies and is the author and co-author of critically acclaimed books on cults. An avid contributor to the field of cultic studies through her research, Presentation and articles, Dr. Lalich specialized in self-sealing or closed systems like cults, human trafficking, and situations of extreme coercive influence and control. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Lalich. I appreciate you agreeing to come back again so soon. Oh, thanks, Prentice. I, I, I had no problem making the decision. I really enjoyed last time. I want to take just a minute to remind folks that we value listener participation. So if you have a question for Dr. Lalich or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our phone number is 907-550-8433. That's 907-550-8433. If you're listening outside of Anchorage, You can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to join us is to email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. We will do our best to get your your questions answered on the air. Um, Folks often tend to wait until the end once their uh, questions have been formulated and then Unfortunately, I won't have time to get to everybody, so get in early if you can. All right. Uh, Last time, um, well, just take a a brief second to sort of introduce yourself, Dr. Lalich, and and how you got into this field, and then we'll go into more of your experience um, personally with uh, cults. But talk about your sort of your background and some of the the credentials that you bring to this conversation. Sure. Um, I mean, you said quite a lot in the introduction, but I guess I could add that um, I am a retired sociology professor, uh, Professor Emerita of sociology at one of the California State Universities, where I taught for close to 20 years. Um, And during that time, I also maintained a presence in the sort of cultic studies or cult awareness field um, and continued to write books, do my research. Um, Yeah, I got it. Well, I got into it. You'll hear my story, but I got into it because when I got out of the cult I was in, I eventually decided to go to grad school 
um, and get my PhD. But even before that, I was doing a lot of presentations and talking with, with families and former members, um, especially because when I left or got out of my group, it was the mid eighties and people weren't really talking about political cults, which was the kind of group I was in. So I felt it was important to sort of add that bit to what we already knew about cults and draw the parallels. So now I'm retired, supposedly, mm -hmm. <laughs> for the last three years, although I am definitely busier than ever. And, um, you know, really, I'm enjoying life, but I'm also working an awful lot. Well, it seems like you would be busy because right now, and we'll get into a little bit uh, deeper later in the show about the environment that we are in, but there is a, a wave of extremism um, yes. throughout our country and, and across the world, really, that um, has created, I mean, created a lot of fear for a lot of people. And it's, you know, it got me to the point where I, you know, bought 20 pounds of black beans and, <laughs> you know, I was ready an extra gas for my boat because I was going to go up river. Um, but, you know, it's uh, joking aside, it is a time that that creates a lot of unrest and then the pandemic on top of it. And people are on edge and they're looking for people to follow and people to believe in. So it's an interesting time, which we will get into. But, um, yeah, for we last time we briefly touched on your personal experience in in a cult and can you tell us i guess more in depth um as we start off this show like what was that experience for you because i mean i'm i'm like everybody else i would say oh i could never i could right. never get suckered into one of those things and and but we are not immune to that and we are not uh we're all vulnerable um to some of right. those those sort of looking for, you know, we get hope and we get sucked in and we believe in somebody's ideology and their message. And um, so can you talk a little bit in depth about why, how you got into that? Because you seem like a bright, a bright woman who uh, can think for herself and make her own decisions. And um, what got you in and, and how did you kind of like figure it out? that you were in something odd. Okay, so um, just to give a little background on, on myself, um, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and uh, in an immigrant family. My father uh, came over from Serbia when he was like 15 and my mother was born here, but her parents came over when they were young and actually met in America and then got married moved to Wisconsin, had children. Um, so I grew up, um, uh, there were a lot of things in my family that basically I think led me to be a kind of a, I, I used to call myself toughy. I mean, I was a tough little kid. Um, I mostly played with my brother and um, because my sister got polio. And so I, you know, I was always kind of thinking for myself and doing what I wanted to do and trying to sort of tune out from the chaos of my family. Um, 
I, I got myself to university. Um, my father didn't want me to go to university. He wanted me to get married to a nice Serbian boy and have boy babies. Mm. And I that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> you right. know, so this is you know, back in the early 60s. Uh, so I got to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and um, did very well, Did went on my junior year to France. I became a French major. And uh, after I graduated, I also got a Fulbright Fellowship, which is a very prestigious award um, to study for another year in France as a postgraduate. And so, um, you know, when I say these things, not to brag, but to let people understand that this is the type of person who gets into cults. It's not stupid, weird, crazy people, but it's highly intelligent, curious, outgoing individuals. who. It's not the QAnon shaman. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, time goes on. Um, I lived in New York. I became a hippie. I ended up living on an island off the coast of Spain for four years. Um, I was totally immersed in the hippie thing. Uh, and then at some point, I decided to come back and sort of check out what was going on in America. And I ended up in San Francisco because one of my friends from junior year in France was there. You're how old at so this point? At this point, I'm about, I don't know, 29. Okay. And um, I was uh, meeting new people. You know, I was new in town and I had always had sort of progressive ideas and um, this was right after the Vietnam War. And so a mm -hmm. lot of people on the left were kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And there were just a plethora of what were called study groups in most urban areas at that time. So I was invited by a friend of a friend, um, this very kind of charismatic woman uh, who lived down the street from me. Uh, we'd have coffee and she eventually invited me to join a study group. And I thought that sounded interesting that I'd, you know, meet some new people and it, we were going to study sort of uh, leftist and revolutionary works. And so that all sounded great to me. So I joined the study group. I didn't know that it was a front for the cult, that were, there was this background organization I didn't know anything about. Um, and so there were maybe 10 of us in the study group, all women. And... Um, yeah, I, you know, we had, we took turns presenting the material and I was always, you know, showered with a lot of praise mm -hmm. and made to feel super smart. And of course, this is what they do. We call this love bombing, right? It's while you're getting recruited, they make you feel like you're really special and that you found something. So at one point, the woman who had asked me to join the study group uh, met with me at my apartment and said, oh, well, you know, how do you like study group? What are you learning? And I said, well, I'm learning that, you know, in order to really make social change, uh, you need to have a disciplined Marxist-Leninist organization. And she said, yes. And, you know, what if, what if I told you we have one of those? And I'm like, what? And she said, yeah, you know, we have this organization. We keep it very secret because of all the things that are going on now. This was around the time of the Patty Hearst Right. And the SLA and the FBI was all over looking for people. And so that made sense to me, you know. So so she said, What, you know, would you be interested in joining? And I was like, Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Go check it and out. She, yeah. Right. And she said, Here, fill out this application first. You know, so this is kind of bait and switch, right? 
So I fill out the application. It asks me everything about my life, my family, my bank accounts, my passport number, you know, every, so by that, that, at that point, they knew everything about me and I got accepted. Um, and I did know that two new friends that I had made were also joining at the same time. So it seemed like, okay. And then I knew other people from just the community that were joining or were already in. And I thought, okay, these are all good people. This, right. this seems fine. And I really felt like, you know, that I had found something that would really give me purpose in life and meaning. And I was very, you know, very much for getting rid of racism and sexism and classism. And, you know, that's what we supposedly stood for. I had no idea there was actually a leader uh, until after I was already in. And then at one point I met the leader who was a woman uh, who was um, basically an alcoholic. Of course, I didn't know that the minute I met her, but she was a, also a sociologist and um, had taught at a couple of universities and never got tenure and basically came to San Francisco and started this organization. Um, so very quickly, I was sort of rising up the ranks. Um, I, my first job was to be secretary of the central committee. So I would have to go to these long meetings and then go home and type up the notes with carbon paper. If people remember yeah. the days of writers and carbon paper, and I'd have to deliver the minutes, you know, to, to the seven members of the central committee before six o'clock in the morning. So you know, I was getting a little bit sleep deprived. Um, anyway, they had told me, you know, this was a large organization and it was international and it was mixed and this and that. Well, you know, in fact, at that point, there were maybe 25 members. Um, most of the early years, the first few years, we, we were pretty much, I guess you would say, underground. Um, we basically spent enormous amounts of time studying and in what were called criticism sessions where people were criticized for one thing or another to get rid of their quote bourgeois tendencies you know from being raised in regular society and um and so we were all very gung-ho and I thought wow these people are really serious and I've really found something and every time I had a question about something you know I I kind of just shoved it in the back of my head I was like well you know everybody else is going along with it you know we had to change our names we had all kinds of security regulations. And I thought, well, you know, they're being serious. This is for our own security. You know, so I, you know, I made all these rationalizations. So you had some, things. you had some alarm bells going off. I you, did. I had alarm bells and I ignored them. You um, looked and around there was no and other people right. were, you're like, yeah, I trust right. these people. I like these people. They're smart. Exactly. And if you did raise something, which I did a couple of times, you pretty much got lambasted in one way or another and made to feel like, you know, that was just your selfish self and, you know, mm -hmm. you were just being a capitalist running dog and, you know, you'd be made to be really feel ashamed that you would ask that question. And, you know, like, I, you know, no one else was doing that. What's wrong with me that I have this question, right? Until eventually you can't even entertain those thoughts anymore. Um, so we eventually surfaced I guess with a bunch of different front groups and we we did we supported labor causes and we worked in you know get out the vote kind of stuff in neighborhoods and uh, we tried to recruit workers and um, we we lived on very little money everybody 
anybody, the, so the organization had a finance committee that decided who worked and who didn't work. And so, and then there was a base level that we all lived on, which was below poverty level. So people who worked turned over whatever was excess over hmm, say yeah. $400 or whatever it was. And then that money was divvied up among those of us who were full-time for the organization. Um, we worked 20 hours days, seven days a week, year after year, no time off. Um, people gave up their children. Like if people got divorced, we encouraged them to give the children to the spouse that was leaving. Wow. We had to ask permission for just about anything, you know, certainly like going home to see family or anything like that was pretty looked down on. Um, after a while, women were encouraged not to have children because they would get in the way of our work. So people were, and I was one of the people who went around and did this and convinced somebody to, you know, have an abortion or get their tubes tied so they wouldn't have any more children. Um, and it was, so it was a very harsh existence. Mm. So besides all of the daily work, we had endless criticism sessions that just were tearing people apart. Um, and, and so years went on, um, you know, the local newspaper in San Francisco said we were a cult. And of course we would do damage control and say, oh, what do they know? You know, they do, they're just red baiting us. And made all these excuses for that. And um, so a couple of things happened that sort of dinged my brain finally. And, and one was that because I was in the inner circle, I really participated in and was witness to a lot of stuff that I thought was really wrong. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I would, again, make excuses. Um, like the leader was was often, we'd have to spend like, holidays with her at her house in the country and she'd get really drunk and she'd hit people and she'd make us sing the house on the rising sun and you know she'd challenge some man to go upstairs and have sex with her and I mean th these were just awful and very traumatic and um and at some point I thought I can't you know there's something wrong with me that mm. these things bother me because no one else seems to be bothered but I'm going to do whatever I can not to go to these anymore. <laughs> and so I would pretend I was sick or whatever. And, and, but I knew about the, the fake businesses we set up and the money failing and, you know, the sort of arbitrary nature of expelling someone and, and just, you know, it just kind of was overwhelming. And then a situation happened, which I can't get into the whole story, but um, my mother, who was a, nice little lady back in Wisconsin ended up getting a, a malignant brain tumor and she had just they said a month to six weeks to live I asked for a, a leave of absence to go back to Milwaukee and take care of her and they said oh no no that you know we would miss you too much bring your mother out here so like a good comrade I brought my mother out to San Francisco I mean she probably only had ever left Milwaukee once and she lived in my house. My other roommates were told to move out and she had had the brain surgery. So she was pretty wobbly. And, um, and I, and I never saw her. And I said, well, you know, you told me to bring my mom out here, but I never see her. And they said, well, you can have dinner with her. And I'd get 45 minutes off every day to go have dinner wow. with her. And the rest of the time she's sitting alone in the house with my dog. Um, and then they decided she should work for the organization. So they had somebody pick her up and take her to one of our public offices, 
you know, with her wig and her cane and everything. And, and I guess she did filing or something like that. I don't know. Everybody loved her. She was such a sweet woman. And so then, of course, I never really saw her much again. Um, and then after, I guess she was there about a month. And I came home one night about 11 o'clock, 1130, and opened her bedroom door. And she was lying dead on the floor. Hmm. And I lost it. Um, I was, you know, I mean, she died there alone. It was very hard for me. And so I called my best friend over and, you know, the coroner came, took the body, whatever. And, and then I called my leadership and I said, my mother just died and I'm having the body flown home. And, you know, uh, and, and she said to me on the other end of the line, she was the second in command. She said to me in this very harsh voice, well, you're not going to the funeral, are you? And I thought, what the heck? I just spent all these years killing myself, supposedly to build a better world. And if this is the better world right. we're creating, then I'm told I can't go to my mother's funeral who just died in my house. This is nuts. So that was kind of a crack. Um, I did, I borrowed money. I went to the funeral. I planned the whole thing. I have absolutely no recollection of it. I was so traumatized and scared. I flew uh, during the big Serbian dinner afterwards, I left and flew home on a night flight. And the next day I was criticized in a room with 40 people and I'm sitting in a chair and I was criticized for putting my mother ahead of the revolution. All right. And Can I uh, pause you there for a second? Because we are up against sure. our first break. You have break. to have a commercial. I'm yes. sorry. Am I talking too long? <laughs> no, but I, I do want to get into like the uh, the exit. And that sounds like there was a shock at some yeah. right there that really sort of like shifted something for you. So we will continue that. Um, if you're just tuning in with us, cult expert Dr. Yanya Lalich has returned to line one to continue our discussion about the worlds of cults and extremism. Um, Dr. Lalich is one of the world's leading experts on cults specializing in the areas of recruitment, indoctrination, coercion, and charismatic authority. Uh, for the first 20 minutes of the show, she has been sort of like sharing her own personal experience of of being in a cult and which has been fascinating and we're going to come back and sort of wrap that up and then get into uh, some other areas. Um, but we will, uh, after a short break, we will continue our conversation uh, with Yanya Lalich. Uh, I'm Prentice Pemberton. You were listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message is sponsored by the Strong Hearts Native Helpline.
Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in uh, today, Dr. Yanya Lelich is returned to Line One to continue our discussion about the world of cults and extremism. Uh, for anybody who watched uh, the docu-series on Heaven's Gate, uh, the Heaven's Gate cult in 2020, uh, you might remember uh, Dr. Lalich from that. She uh, did some did some work with that docu-series. So um, she has been around the the block a few times with cults and is is right now sharing her personal story, which I could listen to all day. It's fascinating of uh, being in a cult and sort of how she got out. So we'll continue that um, that line of uh, conversation, and then we'll get into some other. Um, some other areas around extremism and, and cults and some of the political stuff that's going on uh, in our country and in the world. So if you have a question for Dr. Lalich or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org. You can call us in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, and you can reach us toll-free from anywhere you might be listening at one 888 3535752 okay um dr lalich before the break you had uh told us the story of how you got involved and bringing your mother out to san francisco and then just the incredible experience of them shaming you and belittling you for wanting to go to her funeral and then you return so um, what happened next? How did that sort of break or that shock sort of shift things for you? And then how did you find your way out? So I'll try to keep this short so that we can get to other topics. But essentially, I would say after that huge criticism session, I was I was really just a broken person. And, you know, we were never allowed to cry. We were never to have emotions. Um, so, you know, you're sitting through four hours of that and you just have to sit there. But anyway, I, I was so miserable and I wanted to get out and I couldn't figure out how to get out. I mean, I knew, I knew they'd come after me because I knew so much. I knew I didn't have a money or a car that would get me anywhere. Um, and so every morning I'd get up and I'd take a shower and I would just cry my eyes out and I would get in my car and I would just wish that I would be killed in a car accident because mm. it was the only way I could see to get out. Um, and that went on for about four years, four and a half years. Wow. Um, I, I was just a shadow of myself. I was like a dead person. And but as things progressed in the organization, everything got more and more extreme and the leader was more and more alcoholic. And um, eventually she was out of the country at one point. Uh, and, and while she was away, uh, those of us in the inner circle kind of had a breaking moment similar to mine. And we called together the whole membership and told them what was going on what you know who, what she really was and you know that we were in a cult and and it took about almost a week to convince people that that we weren't just trying to take over that this was really the truth um it and, wasn't a revolt um, or a yeah, yeah it, so a you coup. know so, yeah so here we were like ripping the rug out from people because a lot of people had no idea what went on 
um, and thought they were doing good. And so, and at that point, I'd say there were about 125 full-time members and we brought people back from, we had people in other cities. So at some point, the night before she came back, we took a vote and we voted to expel her and to dissolve the organization. And we all got out. And then wow. we all had to put our lives back together. Wow. So it was sort of a collective movement. It just got so we finally, crazy. We finally had our revolution. <laughs> Not yeah. the one we expected. But <laughs> right. And once once you all started talking to each other, right. it all just sort of broke. Um, exactly. exactly. That's, that's an incredible story. And I really do appreciate you um, opening up and, and telling us that. I know um, it's, you've probably told that story a million times, but um, that's, uh, yeah, that was it's really, easy. no, it's that was easy. powerful. Especially so. the part about my mother, it's, that's still, I never got to, you know, mourn my mother's death. And so, and that's what and that's what um, happens in these systems, right? You talk about a closed system, or um, what's the other term you used? A, a self-sealing system. Yeah, can you explain mm -hmm. why that is so critical to the cult uh, sort of power? Right. So, what happens when you're in these groups, um, and and you don't all have to live together. You don't have to be on a compound somewhere in the middle of nowhere or some ashram somewhere. It doesn't. You know, we were scattered in places around San Francisco, um, but the self-sealing system or the closed system is 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 kind of a metaphor for the environment that you're enmeshed in, and and that environment is ruled by the ideology of the group and the desires of the leader and has created this um, sort of us versus them mentality, right? So we're the good guys and everybody else is bad. Um, so we either have to recruit them or do something to them. And so you believe in this truth with a capital T and you engage in a kind of closed mindedness where you're shutting out any other points of view or any other realities and you're not getting any other outside influences or reality checks like you would in living a regular life, not in an, in an organization like that. And much of it is built on fear and paranoia so that you also feel very dependent on the group and that you 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 know you can't leave because if you leave something awful is going to happen to you or you you know you're wrong and they really are right and so if you leave that's the end of your salvation whatever type it may be so so the closed system is really like closing your mind uh within this social environment that you're enmeshed in it also seems, um, you know, listening to you talk and listening to your story, it's important that the organization keep the true nature of it in a sealed sort of container until you really get somebody hooked in and you know, because if you just talked about it openly out in the world, people would just walk away, right? Until you get somebody hooked in, um, right. you don't. Uh, you don't uncover that sort of underbelly. Right. And, you know, cults exist on a continuum. So some are way more harmful and t tightly sealed than others at the other end of the spectrum where it's like somewhat more benign. So you can also have 
people be in the same organization and have very, very different experiences. Um, so that, for example, in my group, people who were more on the outer rings, um, you know, thought it, it was wonderful. They were doing good work. They were, you know, getting people to vote, whatever. And they had no clue the kind of, you know, harshness and brutality that those of us closer to the top lived through. Um, so, so you, you know, sometimes someone will come out and say, well, that wasn't a cult, but, you know, maybe their experience was, was not that tightly enclosed. Right. And well, that's why when you said, like, you pulled everybody together and you're like, hey, we're in a cult. Yeah. They're like, what? No. Not exactly. <laughs> what? <laughs> we are not. Okay. What? <laughs> I, I'd like to uh, shift gears because you have done a lot of work in human trafficking. And um, I know there, there's a lot of conversation right now about human trafficking in the world. It's a big problem. And um, both sex trafficking and, and slave, like labor trafficking. And can you talk about like your work in that briefly and how, how are these two things overlap cults and human trafficking? They seem different, but yes, you mentioned that there's a lot of similarities. Right. Well, most of my involvement with human trafficking was when I was at the university and I was a uh, faculty advisor uh, for a club called Stop Trafficking of Persons, which um, grew out of a class that I did where the whole class had to do a project on trafficking. Uh, and they were so taken by it that some of the students said, let's start a club. So we did a lot of work. We were probably the best known club on campus. And every year we would do a big conference and bring in, you know, top human trafficking spokespeople from around the country and trainings and people could get certificates and, and um, showed films and just did a lot of education around the community and on campus um, about human trafficking. Um, so I, the, there's, you know, and we, we were in a small town, I mean, a relatively small town and, you know, there's a, um, there's a website called Rub Maps, and you can go to that website and you can find all the erotic massage parlors in your area. Mm -hmm. And in our little town, I think there were 25. Wow. And, you know, people, you know, you'd see the trucks parked there. Uh, they'd always be open way into the wee hours of the morning. Um, and most of those women are Asian and most of them are trafficked and half of them don't even know what town they're in. I mean, it's just pathetic. Um, but the similarities with cults, well, there's two ways. One is that a number of cults also do sex trafficking, and mm -hmm. certainly a huge number of them do labor trafficking, where people from sometimes age four years old and on are working for free for the organization. So it's basically unpaid labor uh, for your entire life or until you get out. Um, or maybe like in my group, we were paid a pittance, but you know, there's no way that was like a viable salary. Uh, so the labor trafficking that happens in cults is is very prevalent. And there are some cults that have been busted on that. I mean, it's, you know, there are federal laws now, and there are some cult leaders who've gone to jail for that, as well as sex trafficking, um, like Keith Ranieri, who was the head of the Nexium cult mm -hmm. uh, in, in New York. Um, and, and most recently, this guy named Larry Ray, who had the cult at the Sarah Lawrence College. So there's that similarity, but also, especially if uh, one of the 
quote, sex workers um, gets into the trade through what we call a Romeo pimp. Um, it's very, very similar to the kinds of seduction and indoctrination that goes on in cults because this, you know, she'll meet some guy, he's very loving to her, he's her boyfriend, you know, she thinks he adores her, she adores him, eventually he asks her to sleep with so-and-so and then sleep with so-and-so until, you know, at some point, you know, she's a full-blown prostitute, not by choice, but because she got coerced into it by her Romeo pimp. Um, and it's very difficult for them to break away from that because of the love bond. Uh, so, so that's also a, a very dynamic happen cults, um, and also the kind of recovery, uh, the kind of trauma that people go through is very similar. Yeah, are we talking about? Um, you know, you think of human trafficking. You think of people getting nabbed off the street, and you know, then forced to and being sold, or, or you know, mm-hmm. under. But it's not typically like that right it's a it's a luring in and it's a it's a luring in and it happens seduction everywhere. yeah i mean and it's so prevalent and i think a lot of people i think there's been a great deal of education the last say 10 years which has really helped but i think still most people think most americans think oh well that just happens to foreign women and that's not true i mean there's plenty 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 american girls and boys uh, who also are getting trafficked um, and so it, it is a very big issue. Okay, I have an email I want to read, which I think you will have a answer to. Um, why wouldn't someone quit a cult the very first time someone hit them? Being physically attacked is the ultimate show of disrespect. I urge my students to immediately leave any relationship where someone hits them, period. I'm fascinated by this topic, but I feel I have no understanding of the attraction to people that behave inhumanely. So... Yeah, it makes common sense to all of us. Somebody hits you, um, then you leave. Somebody belittles you, you walk away, right? That's that's easy. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like the, the story I heard where the, uh, you know, some really high up uh, woman in domestic violence and domestic abuse, abuse organization was killed by her abusive husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was one of the leaders in that organization. So yeah, speak briefly to that. I mean, that, that sort of pattern. I, I think what's important to understand is that the recruitment and the involvement is a process. And so more than likely they're not some, you know, the cult leader or whoever isn't going to hit you the first day or the first week, or maybe not even the first year. They're going to shower you with love. Right. They're going to shower you with love. And then through whatever the indoctrination program is in that particular group, it may be that that kind of violence becomes normalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in many um, in many of the religious cults and, and not all cults are religious. I hope obviously that's understood. But in, in many of the religious cults, uh, beating the children is considered biblical. It's considered from the scriptures, right? Spare the rod, spoil yeah. the child. And so some of the, some of the uh, very strict cultic, fun, especially fundamentalist organizations do practice that. Um, and, and so people accept it as a part of 
what they believe in. You know, they're led to accept that that's from the Bible or that's from ex-guru or whatever. And by the time you get to that point, it's it's usually too late to just walk away. And, and that's why so many people have, when people do leave, have enormous amount of guilt and shame. I mean, one of the courses that I teach um, through my new project, Take Back Your Life Recovery, is we have a course called Forgiveness of Self hmm. because people get out and they're like, why didn't I do something? Why didn't I stand up? Why didn't I leave earlier? Why didn't I stop when that was happening? Well, you couldn't. You were in such a controlled environment that, that there was no way you could do that um, short of yourself being killed or beaten or whatever. And so there's just a great deal of, of trauma around that, that people have to resolve when they come out of those groups. It is easy for someone on the outside who's never been through it yes. to sort of question that. And of course, if someone walked up to you, uh, Dr. Lalich, and smacked you, like you would, <laughs> you would say, that's absurd. And you would remove yourself from that relationship. But domestic violence, that cycle of violence, um, mm -hmm. And as you described yourself, just being broken, you know, broken down and then built back up, that that's your everything. That's the only thing you know. And there's a there's a loss of this, you know, what's loss primarily done. Yeah, loss of self. And that's what primarily happens during the indoctrination process. It's like your yourself is being attacked and taken apart and anything you believe before that is considered no good. And so they're rebuilding you in whatever image they want. And so you lose self-confidence and you lose trust in yourself and you don't listen to your gut. Um, and, and you just become this, you know, sort of good little obeying cult member or, right. you know, real domestic relationship. I mean, that's, it's, it's the same thing. Your brain is essentially hijacked. It's deeply psychological and and so it would be naive for any of us to think that we are completely immune to that mm -hmm. under the right circumstances. Absolutely. Okay, if you're just joining us, cult expert Dr. Yanya Lalich has returned to line one to continue our discussion about the world of cults and extremism. Dr. Lalich is one of the world's leading experts on cults, specializing in the areas of recruitment, indoctrination, coercion, and charismatic authority. After a short break, I will let you know how to reach us with your questions or comments, and we will continue our conversation with Dr. Yanya Lalich. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you are listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, cult expert Dr. Yanya Lalich has returned to Line One to continue our discussion about the world of cults and extremism. 
She is one of the world's leading experts on cults, specializing in the areas of recruitment, indoctrination, coercion, and charismatic authority. Uh, Today, she has um, shared with us, if you missed the first, uh, I'd say, 30 minutes of the show, she shared her story of... um, being into being becoming involved in a cult and and how it sort of uh, broke her and then how she broke away from that which was a really uh, powerful and interesting story that I appreciate her sharing with us today so if you didn't catch it um, go back and listen to it tonight or or on a podcast um, it's worth listening to so if you have a question for Dr. Lalich uh, or a comment about today's topic Please feel free to give us a call in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, our Anchorage number is 907-550-8433. You can reach us toll-free, 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to participate is to email your questions or comments to line1 at alaskapublic.org. All right, um, Dr. Lalich, I thought, you know, I was excited to have another conversation. I didn't want to have the same conversation. Now I realize we could talk for four more hours. I mean, this is I just... Know, I, was just I was thinking that <laughs> I mean, you might have to have me as a weekly guest. <laughs> I know. It's fascinating. And there's so many different directions to go. Like I have so many questions about human trafficking now um, and, you know, what people should look out for and how to protect our children. And um, but I do want to get to, I listened to a uh, interview you did um, on a podcast and it was fascinating. Uh, and it was the, I'd like for you to sort of make your argument. I mean, we've had a lot of political leaders in our, in our country and none of them seem to have created the following and devotion that um, Mr. Trump has sort of created. And so your argument, we are, you know, Alaska's, a heavily Republican state. We elect on national elections. We elect Republicans for president and um, people voted for Trump and really smart, um, you know, like friends of mine would have voted for Trump and would vote again for Trump. And I, I, you know, I have a hard time understanding that personally. Um, But you made the argument that Trump is uh, his political movement is cultish and and a cult. And so can you, based on your, you know, uh, many, many years and experience of the tactics and strategies, can you sort of make that argument for us and, and explain why you have that, hold that position? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to imply that the Trumpism is a, is a full-on cult, but certainly Mr. Trump is has what we might call a cult of personality around him. And he has done many things very similar to what cult leaders do. And his followers, many of his followers, certainly not all of them, um, display the same kind of sort of blind allegiance um, and followership to him as we see in cults. Um, So the things that that stood out to me um, when I first was interviewed about this, and this was, I think, maybe even while he was still president, I can't remember, but, um, you know, he set up an environment where 
first of all, there were consequences if you weren't loyal to him, right? So you knew you would lose his support, which meant you might lose your uh, your voters in your region or whatever if you were a member of the of the government. Um, but I think the the and then when he would do the rallies, uh, which he continually did, um, that was very much like what quote charismatic leaders do. Charismatic leaders have to appear every now and then and and rouse up the masses, so to speak, or you know get their followers to see that they're still there and they're still doing whatever wondrous things that they can supposedly do. So by having his rallies um, and all of that very exuberant atmosphere and having the slogans and the cheering and making fun of things, um, he used what we call high arousal techniques. So when you're in, an, in a setting like that, right, you don't use your critical thinking. You're basically just going along with the crowd and you're cheering and you're saying, lock her up or whatever. And you're just right. like kind of going crazy with it. Um, so that re-energized his followers. Um, but, but I'd say that probably the worst thing he did, um, which I don't think any other leader has ever done, uh, was that he unleashed uh, the us versus them mentality, which is what we see in cults, right? Yeah. So you know, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. So it got to the point where there was such polarization in our country, right? So you were either with us or against us. And if you were against us, we could shoot you or we could kill you. So we have people going into Walmart and shooting people up because they're being asked to wear a mask or these things that are, that, you know, five, six, seven, ten years ago, we would never have dreamed possible in this country, even though we've always had a gun problem. But he unleashed this us versus them mentality, and it increased the, the expressions of hatred and violence, and um, to a degree that we've never seen before. And within that, he gave license to the white supremacists and other hate groups so that they began to act out far more than they ever did before. I mean, up until then, these little supremacist groups were considered fringe. I mean, people didn't pay too much attention to them. But here they had the head of the country, you know, giving them nods, you know, saying that they were nice people. And so that allowed them to then begin to act out, you know. And so what did we get out of that? We got January 6th. Um, and he also unleashed the whole that whole world of conspiracy theories, right? So we have you know, the QAnon and the anti-vaxxers and the, all these wild conspiracy theories that people got swept into during the sheltered in year of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, he obviously bought into a lot of those himself and promoted them. So it really, to me, it's something we, we certainly have never seen before in our country. Um, and it's, it, it's difficult to see how we're going to turn that around because, you know, it's not that the racism wasn't there before, but it 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 wasn't accept, acceptable to act out in the way people do now, you know, or the banning of books or now the banning of abortion, you know, all these things that people have fought for basic freedoms um, are being challenged and threatened. And I, you know, I would say like politically, I would, you know, I would disagree with folks like, uh, Mitt Romney or John McCain. Um, but, you know, those people seem to be genuinely good people that you can disagree yeah. with politically, that you can, that would not 
ever go to these extreme, um, mm -hmm. take these positions that create such fear and drive and, and identify enemies rather than, I mean, everything used to be, we would have civil disagreements and differences of opinion, um, but it really has been this huge shift uh, to either all or nothing thinking, us versus them, as you mentioned, and, and that seems to have gone right along um, with the Trump era. And I don't, I mean, I don't know any other way to, to explain the timing other than, and you described those rallies, and most of the people that I know that voted for Trump on, you know, on basic issues, conservative issues, and said, well, he stands for the right for conservative values, would never be caught dead at one of those rallies. Mm -hmm. um, but that is the show and the, uh, and then the threats, and, and then people fall in line. Trump would be nothing without people that excused his behavior and supported exactly. him, correct? Yes, exactly. And that, you know, and that is, even though those people never went to the rallies, the problem is that they're promoting and supporting, um, you know, a, 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 <laughs> to use a nice word, an unhealthy situation and rationalizing um, bad behavior. I mean, when I was in my cult, you know, when I would see these things, or I would say to myself, okay, you know, we're in the lineage of Stalin, and at least we haven't killed anyone yet. Right. And that that was that was how I justified what the what was going on. Right. So we do these crazy rationalizations so that we don't have to give up some thing we've tied ourselves to our identity as a conservative or whatever. And unfortunately, it's lending credence to something very harmful. Right. Um, I have an email, which is it came in a little while ago in our discussion, but I think it's worth mentioning that. Um, our discussion is exactly describing the Native people's experience in going to schools across Canada and America, um, this indoctrination and the violence and the taking away of their beliefs and isolating them from their families back in the 60s and 70s even. Um, that's just, I think, a point that's worth <laughs> worth mentioning. Yes, and I, I do believe that's a very important point. And actually the native schools fit very much into what is now a very big movement called the, uh, the troubled teen industry, where kids here are sent to these awful programs, you know, fake rehab programs or, or wilderness camps or sent off to some island. And there's very brutal behavior happening there. People are beaten, there's sexual abuse, all kinds of stuff. And it's the same kind of indoctrination and, and, um, just, you know, exploiting young people that that did happen to the natives in our country and probably to some extent still does. And so actually some of those movements um, that are fighting the troubled teen industry are, are wanting to include that history as well, because it is part of it. I worked at um, first job out of college. I worked at one of those uh, drug rehab places for kids that was very rigid and very structured and very shame based. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was like 22 years old and, you know, like looking around and I thought some of this stuff is weird. Um, right. but I was part of this belief and you we were sold that this is the last 
ditch exactly. effort. And it was a program started by parents to save their children's lives. And extreme exactly. circumstances require extreme measures. Um, and I was there for a couple of years and then I, mm. I it was just became poison. Um, and I think they've been shut down since. Uh, critical thinking, you make that or, or you you make the argument that that's something that's lost. Can you, we only have a couple of minutes left, but can you talk about the loss of critical thinking and why that's so important in sort of fighting this era of extremism and, and following along with these leaders? Yeah, I, you know, I think critical thinking is is just simply, you know, not taking everything at face value, you know, really asking questions, doing your own research, um, checking out the sources, are the sources valid? You know, has it been academically researched or approved by, you know, or peer reviewed, depending on, you know, what you're looking at? Um, and, and to also look at the other side. I mean, I think part of critical thinking is being able to entertain both sides of an issue so that you really understand what you believe in or what you're taking on as your value and, and, um, and I also think, you know, there are these phrases like there's no free lunch, right? Or if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. And I think if people remembered things like that, when that when they hear, you know, some of the disinformation or misinformation that we're getting from the media, um, and some of that's on both sides. I'm not just saying it's all on right. the right, although say the right has a little bit more of it going on. But, you know, I think it's really just questioning things, questioning things, um, talking to people on the other side of the issue and see what they have to say, um, and really coming to your own conclusions and not just saying, oh, yeah, that's great. I, I believe that. That must have happened. I have made it a very intentional practice to really question what I believe and even what I want to believe as true mm -hmm. um, and reach out and find some additional sources. I want to read an email, and I won't have time to get it, but um, I will send you this email and you can respond to this listener maybe later. Uh, a relative was in a religious cult for over 30 years and has recently realized that it was and started to pull herself out of it. How can I support her as she reconciles with following a charismatic leader for most of her adult life and support her in finding what is next in her spiritual life? Um, so I would I'd like... I'd be happy to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very common phenomenon. I'd be happy to answer that person. All right. I will forward that to you and um, hopefully you can get back to her. So thank you so much, Dr. Lalich, for joining us again. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Prentice. I appreciate it. Be sure to tune in next week for Dr. Justin Clark and a conversation about pediatric pain. My thanks to Line One producer Adlon Baxter and to our audio engineer Tobin Shelby. For all of us at Line One, we appreciate you for taking the time to join us today. Until next time, have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants, and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.